McDonald's presents Burger Reviews by Hamburglar. Today's review, the hotter, juicier, classic burgers. Hamburglar, the time is yours. Bravo, bravo. He said, these are McDonald's best burgers ever. And then, can I keep them? And then he just grabbed them and ran away. Brobble. Now get a Big Mac or double cheeseburger for two bucks in the app. Limited time only at participating McDonald's. Valid one time per day. Must opt into rewards. Visit McD app for details. Available at most restaurants in this area. Comparison of McDonald's classic burgers to prior burgers. I imagine that every one of you listening today has seen a Tudor portrait. And more specifically, a portrait of Edward VI or the princesses Mary and Elizabeth as children. I'm particularly fond of a picture in the National Portrait Gallery by Marcus Gearhartz of Anne, Lady Pope, with her children. The daughter is dressed in a white gown that is very much like her mother's. The two boys are also wearing dresses to all appearances because they haven't yet been breached put into breeches. But when we look at these pictures of Tudor children, have you ever wondered what their lives were like? Did they play? Did they have toys? Did they sing and dance? Did they enjoy jokes and silly rhymes, the kind that no doubt titillated many of us when we were young? Did they celebrate birthdays and go to school? What sort of discipline did they face? Our guest today is Professor Nicholas Orme, who has investigated medieval and early modern childhood. But not just the childhood of English monarchs. In fact, he sought out the childhoods of all manner of children, which has required painstaking research. Emeritus Professor at Exeter University, Nicholas Orme has written more than 30 books. His going to church in medieval England was shortlisted for the Wolfson Prize for History in 2022. And I'm delighted he's here to talk to us as this work is hot off the press. His book is called Tudor Children and it's published this month by Yale University Press. It's a pleasure to talk with Nicholas about a topic that connects us all. Professor Orm, thank you so much for joining us on Not Just the Tudors. I've come across much of your work before. I've read your shortlisted book for the Wolfson Prize, Go to Church in Medieval England. I know your work on medieval childhood. So it's exciting that you have brought your great wealth of expertise to bear on the Tudor period and to think about Tudor children. Thank you very much indeed. It's interesting to think about studying children in the past because in just the same way as if one is studying many Women or people of lower status, children are very difficult to discover often in the archives. So I wonder if we can start by thinking about the challenges of studying children in the Tudor age, how you went about doing it. Were you forced to rely a great deal on prescriptive material? How much did you feel that you could get at the experience of children? I think looking back on my career, I've always been interested in the parts that other people don't reach. And I've found from the very start when I began to work on medieval schools in 1962 that you had to cast your net very widely and I enjoy doing that. You don't necessarily get very much credit for it because you go into specialist areas which have their own specialists who regard you rather as a marauder from outside but that's what you have to do. Well, to take another analogy, it's like archaeologists doing field walking or going very slowly across a field with a detector. And you're just picking up whatever you can. And certainly for the history of children, you have to look everywhere. You have to look in textbooks, in documents, in imaginative literature, in archaeology, in art history. Wherever it can be found. I like that idea of casting the net widely, though I completely understand people being a little proprietorial with their material. I suppose the first thing we should do when we're thinking about childhood is define what a child was in Tudor England. Today we think of a child as being someone under the age of 18. What would the definition have been in the 16th century? Indecisive, just as we are. It's all very well to say that a child legally is under the age of 18, but you start telling 12 and 13-year-olds that they're children and you'll get into trouble. And it's interesting today, isn't it, that when they're victims, they're always called children, but if they're not victims, they're being called students or something else. 
And so people in the past have exactly the same difficulties as we do in setting boundaries. There was a very well understood idea of the ages of man that human life goes through certain stages, each with their own characteristics. And there were different schemes of the ages. There were three, there were four, there were seven. But if you go for seven, then you have infancy up to seven, childhood seven to 14, adolescence 14 to 21 or to 28. They sometimes vary over that. So they would have said childhood classically is seven to 14, but I think in practice they would have lumped infancy along with it as well. And their adolescence would be like ours, in some ways adult and in some ways not. That's really interesting, actually, to think about adolescence lasting till 21. I remember reading that the World Health Organization now says it lasts till 24. And thinking at the time that sounded quite late, but actually in practice, they were there centuries before us, suggesting that it went on slightly later than we admit. It would indeed, because marriage was most commonly in the mid-twenties. And until you were married, you were under the control, to a certain extent, either of your parents or of your employer. Now, let's think about how many children in the world. In 2022, we know that approximately 21% of the population of the UK was children. How would this compare with the proportion of the population that were children in Tudor England? And what does that mean for society? And also, could you tell me a bit about things like the average family makeup, as far as we can get at it, sort of the average age people became children, the size of families, how many children they're having, how often parents had children? Most people, statistically, were marrying in their mid-20s. I forget what the statistics say, but it's women marrying at about 25 and men about two years later. And then if you take the period in which a mother can have children, that limits it, I think, to about six children. But of course, it doesn't by any means mean that everyone gets to six. You might have one or you might have none. And I think in the population as a whole, it's the children up to 14, say, are probably a bigger element. It's more 25 or the upper 20s in percentages because you've got a smaller, older population. The life expectancy is not typically as long as it is today. And the elderly are fewer. So children, in consequence, are larger. And I always think it might be interesting to see if that made a difference to the nature of society, if it was slightly more hot-headed or bombastic or piebald or all these things that we think of as children as being that perhaps sage adults aren't. Let's have a think about the naming of children, because I found it very interesting to read in your book about this. Can you tell me something about this process and also how it was changing over the course of this century? Yes, the history of naming in England is very interesting and it's undergone periodic changes. There's an Anglo-Saxon period and a, a Norman period and then there's a late medieval period when the names on the whole get down to a very small number. And the thing that interested me is that there's no obvious class distinction there, that if you're studying noble families and peasants, they're using this generally fairly small stock of names like John, William, Robert, Richard, Thomas, and then names like Mary and Elizabeth. And a lot of that continues through the 16th century. Now, of course, there were lots of other names as well, but they were relatively unusual. And most parents seem to have been going for the defaults. But actually, that is in itself a problem because there's a lot of evidence that godparents chose names. That was their function at the christening to announce the name. And because christenings were done very soon after birth, that really was an announcement, whereas nowadays it will come in a different sort of way. Now, what happens in the 16th century is that some saints' names go out of use because the Reformation downgrades saints other than the apostles and Mary. The saints are very much downgraded, and so you tend to stop using those names. But instead, you start to draw on classical 
literature. So you start getting in names particularly for women like Diana and Cassandra and Atalanta coming in. They're not at all common, but they are coming in. And then another reformation is Puritanism and the idea that a name ought to enshrine a virtue so that the names like Charity and Hope come in. And it reaches its most bizarre form among extreme Puritans who come up with these names like Praise God and Zeal of the Land and things of that sort, which most people found rather comic, actually. Absolutely. And everything you said just raises so many questions. I wonder how much before they went into confinement, Tudor mothers were talking to their friends who were to be godmothers, saying, I quite like this name, (laughs) or whether that was never a consideration, whether there was never any attempt to influence them. And of course, once you're a historian working on this period, you wish for a different name like Praise God or Zeal of the Land or Atalanta, because then at least you can find the person in the sources instead of all these Thomases everywhere. Now, when a child was born, of course, as there is today, the probably was all sorts of conflicting advice from people around them about how to care for the child. Today, it's whether you breastfeed or give the child a bottle and whether you should do sleep training and all that sort of thing. How did they express views about how to care for a baby in the 16th century? Were they as conflicted as they are today? It's inherited knowledge and your mother has done it and advises you how it's to be done. And you've probably grown up knowing roughly about it as well because I think they're much less protective about sexual matters than people became later on in the 19th century, say. I think that the matters of sex and birth are much more freely discussed in the 16th century. There are textbooks by the 16th century. There are actually two, a German one and an English one by a man called Thomas Fair, who's a very interesting character. He's a polymath, he translates Virgil, he's a lawyer, and he goes into medicine as well, and he doesn't like the medical establishment. He thinks they're keeping essential knowledge from people for money, essentially, and he's going to let the cat out of the bag, and his book is going to tell you everything that you'd otherwise have to pay a doctor for. But I think the answer with books like that is they're only going to circulate among very wealthy people. And as far as one can see, they're not suggesting new approaches. They're just putting down the accepted wisdom of the time. In some ways, then, they're telling elite men who can read what perhaps women have had passed down to them by their mothers anyway. That's very likely, yes. Most mothers breastfed, but the wealthy didn't. And it's difficult to be quite sure why. It was a matter of rank. It was what we did and ordinary people didn't. There were theories that breastfeeding aged a mother more than would otherwise be the case. But anyway, that was what was done by the wealthy. So if you're very wealthy, you get in a wet nurse into the household. If you're less wealthy, you send your child off to somebody else to do it. And the famous Elizabethan mathematician and astrologer John Dee, who lived in Surrey, his wife sent the babies off to wet nurses in nearby villages, and they lived there for a year or two until they were old enough to come back, which seems odd to us. But most people breastfed their children. And of course, there were the very important biblical models of people like Hannah in the Old Testament and the Virgin Mary who had breastfed their children. And so many commentators were holding up these as models to be followed. But there's a very interesting little book on this by the Countess of Lincoln, which comes out in about 1620. And she'd had a lot of children, but had never breastfed any of them. And she, looking back, said, this was a great mistake. I didn't get the services from nurses that I could have given myself. And she writes a little book to affirm and encourage breastfeeding and dedicates it to her daughter-in-law, the next countess, who is going to breastfeed the children. So there are all sorts of things going on. It seems that husbands were encouraging their wealthy wives not to breastfeed, and also other members of the family. It's not something you do. You won't like the trouble. Don't do it. 
but you feel somehow behind this status. It's not what the Earl of Lincoln's family does. And if you do it, you're almost saying the common people. I wonder if sending a child away to wet nurse for the first year or two of life might be related to the next thing I wanted to ask you, which is the fact that we know that something like 17% of babies, probably isn't inexact, but that's the estimated figure, that died in the first year of life and that mortality was 30% for children up until the age of 15. So I guess roughly to adolescence. And I've always wondered how parents felt about this. There was a theory for a long time that because it happened so frequently, parents got inured to it and didn't care. I wondered in your work if you'd come across any evidence to say either way. It's very difficult in the 16th century or the Middle Ages to find evidence about this. I've got a very nice passage from a school book of around about 1500. These are Latin exercises for translation in which a boy says that since my brother died a year ago, my mother has been weeping frequently. I thought that was rather nice. The best evidence I've found, which is tangential really, is letters about children's illnesses. And there are some of these late 16th century, particularly the thin family of long leaks. And it's clear there that... Parents are worried about their children's health and are doing what they can to deal with illnesses. And so I think that is one indication that they're going to be very sorry about a death. We also know from an earlier period, from the study of medieval graves and human remains, that children with severe disabilities grew up to adulthood and that can only have happened because they were cherished by their parents despite the disability. So I think all the evidence is pointing towards the fact as you would expect that human nature doesn't change and that yes parents would be concerned about an illness and very concerned and affected by death. And how interesting also to think about the effect on the children that remained with that opening example you gave of a mother weeping for a year, that's got to affect those children who survived as well. Their parenting completely changes in that period. Yes, that's absolutely right. And another sad feature of Tudor life is that it seems that many children were abandoned or orphaned, of course, because there's all sorts of things that could kill one at this time. What sort of support was available for such children? Abandonment is something more typical of towns or large towns where you've got immigrant populations coming in who don't have any local support. And some of them may be poor. And some of these relationships may have been, that caused the child may have been casual. So you get mothers without support. It's particularly a problem in London, or at least it's tested in London, where perhaps records are fuller than they are elsewhere. So some children are abandoned as babies. They're laid on doorsteps, as it were. Sometimes it's the doorstep of the reputed father to try and bring him to accept responsibility. Sometimes it's on the doorstep of what looks to be a nice house, where you think that the person concerned will either take the child in or will see some provision is made for. And in London, in the middle of the 16th century, Christ Hospital was founded for such children and also older children who were, for some reason or other, abandoned or left orphans by parents. So there is some provision, although we would regard it as rather hit and miss, I think. And the Cross Hospital, I forget how many children it had, but we're talking of two or three hundred, most of all ages. They looked after the children very carefully and the babies were sent out again to be nursed in the countryside around London. Now, there was a powerful theory that was put out by the historian Philippe Arès in the 1960s, that childhood didn't exist in the early modern period, that children were regarded as mini adults. Now, we've already touched on this in terms of thinking about ages and stages of infancy and adolescence. 
But what did your research lead you to conclude about this theory? Oh, I've dealt with that a long time ago when I wrote my book, Freddy and Children, uh, which was published in 2001. And the Arias theory had been falling to bits before that. Arias, I believe, was a French civil servant who was also a historian in his spare time. And uh, he was a pioneering and sensitive historian, mainly worked on the early 17th century and the upbringing of Louis XIII of France. And he was very taken with the sort of psychological issues in the bringing up of a French prince, how those who looked after him were psychologically aware and of all the careful provision that was made for him. He hadn't studied much about the Middle Ages or the early 16th century, except in terms of art history. And it's perfectly true that in medieval art, children are not a big presence apart from the infant or the child Jesus. So he somehow got the idea And when the book came out in England in the early 1960s, people said, oh, yeah, that's what we always thought. Because there is this belief in the past, oh, children are small adults. Several people have said to me in the past, when I've said I work on the issue of childhood, oh, they were regarded as small adults. And when you ask why, in the portraits, they're always shown as in miniature versions of adult clothes, aren't they? To which I say, if you had a wedding photograph, you'd have little page boys in what Americans would call tuxedos, little bridesmaids, and they would be imitating what the adults are wearing. And you've got to be careful about what sort of image you're choosing. On the whole, children do dress like adults, except when they're very small indeed. But by the time children are three, four, five, they're wearing miniature adult clothes, aren't they? There was, I think, this folk belief in a lack of childhood. There were stories people had heard about chimney sweep boys in Victorian England and girls tugging trucks of coal down in the mines, things like that. And so it was thought, oh, yes, there just wasn't childhood. But of course, there always was, because childhood is a fixed biological fact. And in the 16th century, you haven't got much intensive labour of the kind that you have in the 19th with mines and factories. It's a much more agricultural life. And children fit into that. You can give them little jobs taking the geese to the common, or perhaps even a boy leading the horses of the plough, while his father ploughs. Or boys were very commonly sent out to do bird scaring, weren't they? That went on right down to the 19th century in the fields. But you can't get the children into regular industrial work, except perhaps in families who do weaving and fabric production. And then you can get anybody from five canvas who have conscripted into that, but it does appear that it's not very common until about the age of 10. So there's plenty of time, and even when children have occupations, there is time for recreation. And nobody's going to want to employ a child for any serious purpose until they pass puberty, because they just not haven't got the stamina to do the adult work. That's so interesting. I was just reading accounts of what Catherine of Aragon wore as a child, and we do find her wearing a farthingale from quite a young age, maybe five or six which of course created the appearance of wide hips. But as you say, even today, we really dress children in small versions of what we ourselves were, so it makes absolute sense. Hi there, I'm Don Wildman, host of the new podcast, American History Hit. Twice a week, I'll be exploring stories from America's past to help us understand the United States of today. Join me as I head back in time To witness Thomas Jefferson write the Declaration of Independence, head to the battlefields during the Civil War. Visit Chief Poetin as he prepares for war with English colonists. Tour Central Park before it was Central Park. And a city in Tennessee which helped build the atomic bomb. 
From famous battlefields to secret cities, from familiar names to lesser known events, I'll speak with leading experts from across the United States and beyond to bring American history to life. Join me every Monday and Thursday for American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of $15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. This is After Dark. Myths, misdeeds and the paranormal. The podcast that takes you to the shadiest corners of the past, unpicking history's spookiest, strangest and most sinister stories. I'm Maddie Pelling. And I'm Anthony Delaney. Join us every Monday and Thursday and we'll take a look at the darker side of history, from haunted pubs to Houdini to witch trials and arsenic-laced breakfasts. Follow After Dark, Myths, Misdeeds and the Paranormal wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by History Hit. Do we have any idea how Tudor children spoke? No. The nearest you would get to it would be plays where there are children. And actually, there are not that many children in plays I spent a lot of time looking through Shakespeare to see what children he's got. They're usually vulnerable children who are about to be murdered, actually, so you don't get to say very much. There's a schoolboy in The Merry Wives of Winds, but it's quite a good portrait of a boy because he's being quizzed by his schoolmaster as to what he knows of Latin. But it's not a typical conversation by any means. In early Tudor drama, you do get boy parts, particularly for boys of about puberty age who play parts as saucy servants, usually, and comment on the action and so on. But the actual recorded words of children would hardly appear. They might in some court cases, but I haven't ever located any of those. We know that children could be quite free with oaths, and there are several disapproving comments about this. One is by Roger Ashton, who was Queen Elizabeth's schoolmaster, that he went to a, a gentleman's house and there was a little four-year-old and he was asked to say grace before meals, with, with, before the meal, which children were asked to do, and he couldn't. But he was blinding in the Tudor manner, God's wounds or whatever. And Ashram was very upset by this. And there are other comments to the same effect. The reason is said to be because they were spending so much time with servants. And so they, they would pick up this sort of language from them. And Thomas Eliot, who writes a very important book for the education of the nobility in the 16th century, the book called The Governor, which comes out in 1530. He says you should keep servants away from young children so they don't use this, though, of course, they're bound to meet up with nurses and nursery assistants. He also says you should stop nurses using baby talk because this spoils a child's articulation and speech ability in later life, which I think is untrue because the period of baby talk is actually very limited and by the two or the latest, so children are learning ordinary words, aren't they? But it's something he was concerned about. If we think about these sort of rules that were imposed on children, we also, of course, have to think about discipline. And you report in your book that a manual by Hugh Rhodes from 1545 says that children should be punished sharply. Mm. What did this mean in practice? And do you see a difference in the style of discipline depending on the gender of the child or the status of the child, or perhaps even the status of the child within the family? The answer is that we don't know about most of the population, as I'm sure you're aware with Tudor social history. We know about the wealthy and the literate and those where courtesy etiquette books were produced. Society believed in corporal punishment. 
didn't it? it? It punished beggars by whipping. It had crude punishments for unpopular people, putting people in the stocks. It imposed the death penalty quite often. So it was not squeamish about corporal punishment. And corporal punishment was widely associated with schools. It does seem to have been quite common in schools. There was a Tudor writer on Agriculture called Thomas Tusser. He went to Eton and he says he was given an enormous number of strokes of the birch for some very minor offence. So that certainly went on. And John Dee in his diary does mention an occasion when his wife struck their daughter, who was aged eight, on the ear and made her nose bleed. And that was obviously rather serious because he noted it. But clearly, Mrs. D was quite free with her fists, even on her female children. And we know earlier on in the 15th century that Agnes Paston, I think it was, was very severe on her daughter, Elizabeth. Elizabeth wanted to marry the family bailiff, and this was said to be demeaning to the family. And although Elizabeth was in her or late teens by that time, she was getting bit a lot by her mother, so that the concerned relative actually comments on this in a letter. The funny thing is that when people are ever commenting on family and school discipline, they say it's not being done enough. And you get a sort of permanent Daily Mail headline through all this social literature in the 16th century. People are being too soft on the young. They're not taking manners seriously. Very bad in merchant families, supposedly. They're somehow, they don't have the good backbone qualities of the English gentleman or the English peasant or soft. So it does become rather puzzling, where on the one hand you've got all this evidence of what we would call brutality, and on the other hand, a whole lot of evidence where people are saying that parents and teachers are being too soft. But I think that's been the refrain since Cicero. Times are bad, children no longer obey their parents. It's just something that every generation says and imagines that when they were young, everything was different. Thinking about the sort of more pleasant side of childhood, can we think a bit about play? Do we know anything about the sort of toys that children had? Or today children love songs and stories and nursery rhymes. Do we know if these things existed specifically for children in the Tudor period? Yes, we do. And more and more is coming to light about toys. The problem with the survival of toys, of course, is that anything that's wooden or a fabric doesn't usually survive. But in the last 30 or 40 years, with the rise of metal detecting, a lot of excavation has been done on the Thames foreshore in London when the tide goes down and many fragments of metal toys from the 16th century have been found and there's a whole book on this subject now and they're very interesting. Some of them go back to the 13th century. There are knights on horseback, for example, and they're not individually made, they make from moulds. So we're talking about mass production of chores. There are a lot of utensils, bowls, plates, skillets, things of that kind which small children could play with, possibly either specially made or informally fabricated little house. There are quite elaborate things like cupboard. Cupboard is an important part of Elizabethan furniture. It's a display item and you put plates or whatever it is you've got on it. And so you see Puturos who were doing a sideline in toys apart from their other work would stamp out a whole cupboard shape and then you fold it into a three-dimensional thing. And so you've got a three-dimensional model to play with and then you can put your little plates and things on it as well. So you've got that, you've got rattles for children and then you've got all the things that children would use for game. And these can be very humble things like cherry stones and the what are called aglets, the ends of laces, the little metal bits that you tag that you have on the end of a lace. Lots of these have been found and they were used, the cherry stones were used as little balls like marbles for flicking games. And the tags were used as currency because children don't have money. 
But like all of us, if they're playing a game, they want a measure of who's winning. And so used little aglets, also pins. And in the 1960s, there was an excavation of a former school in Coventry where huge numbers of these aglets were found that had fallen down the floorboards. And I've found, and I think it's for the first time, some actual documentary and literary evidence for children playing games and using these little tags for their currency. And then up from that, you get games which you can play with old coins. And if children are of the wealthier parts of society, then they'll have access to drafts and chess and playing cards. And we know that children were playing with playing cards by Elizabeth's reign, certainly. And in one of the school books, there's an account of a game of cards being played by children in a school break. And again, they're playing for pins as the currency. So lots and lots of toys, dolls, of course, fabric dolls, wooden dolls. Dolls were imported in large quantities in the Elizabethan customs books, which actually lay down the custom duties. Wooden dolls are a particular item with a particular customs charge on them. They're being imported from Holland or Germany. So a huge industry, not just a matter of people making up something ad hoc in shops and fairs you would have found toys for sale and i've also found in one conversation manual a father and mother saying we'll buy some babies for our children before we go home after their shopping trip that's a really wonderful set of details you've just given us one thing that people often ask me about is did the tudors celebrate birthdays so can we talk about how children might have marked the passing of time Yes, that's interested me as well. I haven't found an awful lot of evidence about it. Again, in the literate, wealthier ends of society, birth dates are recorded. This is actually something that goes back to at least the 13th century, because we hear in cases that a boy's birth date was noted down, sometimes in the service book of the local parish church, so that it was there for record purposes. In the early 16th century, there's a very good example of this, a London merchant called Richard Hill, who notes down all his children's birth dates, also the time of day which they're born, where they were baptised, who the godparents were, and what the godparents' gifts were at the christening. So at that level, I think people would have known their birth dates. Whether they celebrated birthdays, I really don't know. I did not find evidence of this. And then I think lower down in society, I think it can often be rather more hit and miss that a child will have been told that she or he was born at Easter or on Midsummer Day or around Midsummer Day, and it may not be much more than that. I think children, and particularly adolescents, would have wanted to know the passing of time, because if you become a apprentice, which is basically a system of training for boys, but there are some girl apprentices, it lasts for seven years, is typically from puberty up until about 21. And I think you would have wanted to know how you were doing in terms of getting to the end. I'm pretty sure that adolescents would have been aware of the passing of time. Whether children were, they probably were, because children, in my experience, are very aware of age differences, even if they're not exactly sure what the distance between them and somebody else is. They're aware there is a distance that they're older or they're younger. So I think there's going to be an appreciation of age in some sort of respect. And I suppose one of those ways might have been as they start their education or, as you say, take on an apprenticeship. Can we talk a bit about how children were educated, at least those of the higher end of society about whom we have records? I'd love to know 
who was educated and where and the sort of things that people thought that children should learn in this period? We don't know, except that it clearly goes a long way down society by the 16th century. And one of the things I did was try to read Elizabethan play for what they said about children and about young people. And there's a play, it's got a maidservant who has learnt the Latin primer or prayer book because she can say, Domino labia mea aperies, O Lord, open thou our lips. I thought that was interesting. And in Marlowe's play, Dr. Falstance, which is much better known, there's an ostler or a stable lad who is trying to read one of Falstance's magic books. And he's getting it wrong, but he can read in a rather basic way. So that shows us that by Elizabeth's reign, it's going quite low down society. And what it is, it's learning to read because for two reasons. One is because reading is a useful accomplishment by the 16th century for all sorts of reasons. And the other reason is status. And I'm always amused by the modern debates about education, which try to remove status from education. And for some people, the goal of educational progress is we finally completely get rid of any kind of idea of status. And I think that's going to be very hard to achieve because it's always been there. Even if you are not very wealth and you are paying a penny a week to your son or daughter to go to a little dame reading school, there's already an immediate sense of status about doing that because other people aren't. That's even before you actually get the results of the education. So I think there was a lot of pressure to send children to school to read. It would be boys as well as girls. It must have encompassed even hundreds of thousands of population. We know almost nothing about it. It's not done in the schools that have left records. It's done in people's houses. There are dame schools. There are a school in Weaver's workroom and in the homes of women who do fabric, textile, craft work, because you can actually set the children a task. You can get on and weave a bit, then you can hear some answers and this sort of thing. And also with the dame schools, girls are often taught to read and to do needlework or whatever it is. And there's a very interesting census of the poor in Norwich, I think it's 1590s, where it's clear that a lot of children are going to school, even those in families where the father is put down as unemployed. So by that stage, it's getting very common. When you go above learning to read, and it will be in the 16th century, you start off learning to read Latin in the sense that the alphabet is Latin. We think of it as English, but it isn't. It's Latin. And up until the Reformation, the earliest texts you learned were things like the Paternoster, the Lord's Prayer, and the Ave Maria, and Hail Mary, and the Creed. And you wrote them in Latin because that's how you said them in church. When you get to the Reformation, Latin disappears from church services. And I think from that time onwards, in a reading school, you're only going to be learning to read English. And then at a layer right above the that of the reading school, you've got the grammar school. And that's quite different in that it only caters for boys. It doesn't mean to say that girls did not get educated in Latin, and they did. As you will know, in the 16th century, Margaret Roper, the daughter of Thomas More and Jane Grey, and people like that, they were whizzes of Latin and Greek, and even having a go at Hebrew and Spanish, and Elizabeth I knew Italian. She was able to compose in French, Latin, and Italian. But the schools are only for boys. And they cost a lot more than elementary education. So they are very much more for the upper orders of society. I would say wealthy farmers and shopkeepers, merchants in towns, gentry and nobility. Although the high nobility don't like grammar schools. 
because they're too democratic. You've got this big class with everybody doing the same thing. And this means it's difficult to maintain your noble status. So the nobility tend even the boys to be educated at home rather than at school. You mentioned earlier some very touching examples of children with severe disabilities. And that brings me to think about some of the children who appear marginally in this work. So children with disabilities are one example, those who are bullied. There's a brief reference to homosexuality. Again, I suppose this comes back to the sources. How can one get at these kind of histories? Again, it's very, very difficult, isn't it? Impossible for the vast majority of the population. Sex was something that interested me. Other people have studied it in much more detail. There are a lot of cases of sex outside marriage coming up in the church court records of the 16th century. Unfortunately, as far as I can see, they never mentioned the age of the people concerned. But it's clear that certainly at the upper ends of adolescence, particularly in a house where there's going to be servant lads and servant maids, that you can get uh, sexual relations happening. But it's very difficult to get an idea of it. I think you have to make a distinction between law and reality, which you do, of course, at any period of legal history. So that in the 1540s, wasn't it, there was a parliamentary statute against homosexuality, which actually provided for the death penalty. And there are four or five cases in the late 16th, early 17th century of men being executed for it. But this was clearly wildly untypical and not necessarily true of people's attitudes locally anyway. And I don't think it affected children or adolescents unless they were victims. I don't think anybody was going around policing this to any great extent. There are a lot of complaints about laxity over sexual relationships. As you will know, in the 1550s, the Church of England published homilies, which were to be read in churches on Sundays because most of the clergy were not up to preaching at that stage. And one of the homilies was about sex and was complaining that people were being far too lenient about it. And without being an expert on this, I believe that sexual relationships were tolerated between certainly the engaged and perhaps even before engagement as such, when there were two families who were expecting these two to be betrothed and so on, were being very indulgent about their relationships. But it's very difficult to find out except that my experience of history is that laws are always very poorly applied or poorly observed, as we know from our own times. And so I always take with a pinch of salt some act of parliament, which imposes draconian measures for something or other. There's another example of this with the Tudors were terribly worried about archery because England had no standing army until the Civil War. An English army was civilians in arms. And before handguns had become reliable and relatively cheap, the only weapon you had to rely on was the longbow. And of course, it was famous in English folklore. It was the weapon that had won us Agincourt and the other battles. It was the weapon of Robin Hood, who was the great popular hero in the 16th century, much more in the 16th century than he had been in any earlier century, actually. And so you get a whole series of Tudor statutes beginning in 1513 saying that the whole male population must learn the longbow. Children must be given a bow when they're seven and a couple of arrows, and then they must practice continuously until they're 18, and then they must buy their own bow and arrows. And it just falls on deaf ears. People don't want to spend their precious Sunday afternoons doing archery practice. They'd much rather play cards or dice or run about or snare birds or something like that. And so you get this continuous procession of complaints 
new statutes, people like Ashram and others saying, oh, nobody's doing it anymore, and it's what a disgrace it is. That's another example of legislation that doesn't work. And it's also, in a way, a good a concluding point that Tudor children are a lot more resilient than you might think. They may, by our standards, be rather downcast and subject to discipline. But if they don't want to learn archery, they won't. They'll stick with the games they like. And in the end, it's archery that will disappear and not the games. That is a wonderful place to stop and gives us a sense of children's agency. So thank you so much for giving us this wonderful overview of the period. And anyone who's interested must pick up a copy of Professor Orm's book, which is Tudor Children and is a jolly good read. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much indeed, Susanna. And thanks to my producer, Rob Weinberg, and my researcher, Esther Arnott. And thanks to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. We're always eager to hear your suggestions for podcast subjects. So drop me a line at notjustthetudors at historyhit.com or on Twitter at notjusttudors. Also, if you're in need of an extra hit between podcasts, do sign up to our newsletter, Tudor Tuesday. Details of how to do that are in the notes below this podcast. And please rate, rank, bestow multiple stars and comment on this podcast wherever you listen, including on Spotify. It really helps more people find not just the Tudors. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.